Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we go about our lives in this world, uh, we all at times might have the, the desire to question God. It can be something like, you know, Lord, why did, this, uh, why did this thing happen in my life? Or as you look around you, Lord, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that when there's this and this going on? And it's understandable in a way. After all, our limited minds can't fully comprehend God's ways and God himself. However, it's worth noting that the Bible never outright condemns this sort of thing. There are numerous examples in the Psalms where God's people ask God heartfelt questions. Another important example is the prophet Habakkuk. He asked the Lord a series of questions, and the Lord patiently listened to him and then responded. However, that being said, the Bible also makes clear that questioning God can easily slide into sin. If we ever have questions, they must always be spoken with a heart full of humility and faith, ready to be taught by God and by God's Word. All bitterness, anger, and pride must never be allowed to enter into the picture or into our hearts. That sort of questioning of God is just plain sinful. And sadly, the people of Israel fell into this latter sort of questioning. They questioned God, but there's a complete lack of faith in their hearts and in their mouths. Where is the God of justice? They question. It's more of an accusation than a legitimate question. Now, the Lord answers Israel, but he answers them in a surprising way. He promises them that the God of justice will indeed come, but that justice will in fact be at first pointed at them. As the Lord gives this response, he also provides us with another promise to send the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world so that brings us to the sermon theme. The God of justice will suddenly come to his temple to refine his people. We're going to look at, first of all, the cynical people. Second of all, the refining Lord. And finally, the God of justice. So first of all, the cynical people. Now, the book of Malachi, as you read through it, you will notice that it contains a series of conversations between Israel and the Lord. These conversations follow a particular pattern. First, the Lord makes a statement about himself or about the people. The people respond then by questioning something of God's statement. And then the Lord explains how the statement he made is true, further expanding on it. And we see that pattern repeated in our text. The Lord states, You have wearied the Lord with your words. The people respond, well, how? How have we wearied him? And the Lord explains how they have. He says, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? When you read that, I, I hope you respond by saying, you know, what a terrible thing to say about God. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. 
You know, that's something that goes against God's very nature, and it's downright blasphemous. But we have to ask here, well, how did many people in Israel come to this point in their hearts? And what does it show us about their hearts? Well, Israel has fallen into cynicism. They've developed a pessimistic and even bitter attitude towards God. And you sense a high level of frustration in their words directed towards the Lord. Remember, Israel at this time had returned from exile and had already rebuilt the temple. And it seemed to them maybe that another glory age was coming. Everything would be good again, especially given some of the predictions of the prophets like Haggai and Zechariah a generation earlier. And so they expected God to be doing one thing for them, perhaps destroying their enemies and exalting Israel. But the reality of their daily lives was the opposite. And so their expectations of God and for life, they went completely unfulfilled. And so in In their disappointment, they took on a cynical attitude saying, you know, God delights in those who do evil. That's what it seems to us. After all, nothing seems to happen to these wicked nations that oppress us. They keep getting more and more power and money. And we as God's people continue to struggle and to suffer. It's not fair. Now, we should rightly be horrified at calling God as someone who delights in evil. But we need to be careful because it could could happen to our hearts too. We have the same fallen nature as Israel. And we can have certain expectations of God as well. Uh, We might have certain hopes for the church or God's kingdom in this world. Maybe it's just hopes and expectations for our lives in general. And maybe those expectations are good in themselves. But what happens in our hearts when those hopes and expectations are dashed, when they go completely unfulfilled? What happens then? You know, what happens when instead of the good things you hope for, you end up suffering? Or what about, what about this? You see a world racing towards ever-increasing confusion and sin, and it only seems to get worse. And those who promote evil always seem to have the upper hand. They always seem to be in places of power, in positions of control, and you can't do anything about it, it seems. And seeing that, you wonder, well, why doesn't God do something about it? Why do the wicked keep prospering? Why do they have so much control over life and and culture? Why is their voice magnified in the world while the voice of Christians is silenced and vilified even? Added to this, you might try to serve the Lord in your life, and things seem to only get more difficult, and that's very hard. Witnessing these things go on like that can create a bitterness in our hearts, if we are not careful, even towards God. And then when that happens, someone in good faith might 
remind us of God's promises. But we might just respond cynically like Israel. Yeah, right. Look what's happened. I guess I'm just the exception to that particular promise. We might say along with Israel, where is the God of justice? Or even, where is the God of love? We need to be on guard because a bitter heart like this will always undermine our worship of the Lord. Now, we won't be able to properly praise God when we have harbored a cynical attitude. And this could also be the reason for the problems with Israel's worship described throughout this book of Malachi. We saw earlier how they were offering sick, blind, and lame animals to the Lord, completely contrary to God's law. But maybe they reasoned, maybe they thought it. Well, it doesn't seem to our eyes that God cares about the wicked. They just keep living and prospering. Well, sin must not be that bad then, they might have thought. So it doesn't really matter what kind of sacrifice I bring. While it's not always the case, one thing that can lie at the root of this attitude is a legalistic mindset. You see, if you are in a works-based relationship with the Lord, it almost always will lead to some form of bitterness. That's because life rarely works out the way that we hope and expect, the way we want it to go. And if you see the wicked prospering while you're suffering, it goes completely against the grain of a workspace mindset in your relationship with God. This is something the older brother struggled with in the parable of the prodigal son. His workspace mindset toward his father caused him to be disgruntled and bitter toward his younger brother, who was welcomed back into the family. It appears Israel has fallen into this here in our text too. Where is the God of justice? He delights in wickedness, they say. It's good to ask ourselves, can I spot that thinking in my own heart also? That brings us to our next point. Now, in response to their a bitter and cynical attitude, the Lord could have simply rebuked his people. But instead, as we see here, he gave them a promise. Listen to chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, where is the God of justice, you are asking? Well, don't worry, I can assure you that he is coming. These words, this promise, of course, was fulfilled in the coming of both John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the ancient world, sometimes kings they would send messengers ahead of them as they were going to come to a city the messenger would pre- prepare the people for the king's arrival. They would know that he's coming. They could make sure the road was passable, that nothing hindered the king's journey. And they themselves could get themselves ready. John the Baptist served as this sort of messenger to prepare Israel for the coming of Christ. And the preaching 
of John the Baptist showed emphatically that God does not delight in evil. As the people of Israel had cynically uh, proclaimed in the time of Malachi. Listen only to one example of John's preaching where he proclaimed, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The one coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, you can see that God cares about evil in the words of John the Baptist. Uh, This preaching of John surely would have surprised many within Israel, not least Israel's own leaders like the Pharisees. You see, the attitude displayed in our text had not completely left Israel. Who were the wicked in their minds, many of them? Well, surely it was the invading Romans who had taken control of the land. Surely it was the Samaritans who had corrupted the true worship of God. And God should do something about them, many thought. But regarding Israel... They were God's covenant people. Surely God must be delighted in them. But God's message to Israel through John is quite different. They are children of Abraham, yes. But he's telling them, every single Israelite needs to repent if they will be true children of Abraham. All of them need to prepare themselves for the Lord's coming by turning back to God. And the message is still the same today. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says God's Word. And that includes all of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, we read in Isaiah 53. And so that means that we can't just point the finger at others, we need to repent ourselves of our own sin. You see, it's easy to see the sin of others, isn't it? Israel could see it of the nations around them, but it's not always easy to see or acknowledge your own sin. Look at what we read from Romans 1 and 2, for example. In Romans 1, the Holy Spirit through Paul describes the sin of the unbelieving world and It's obvious, the list is long. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, etc., etc. That's plainly sinful. It's easy to spot. But then in chapter 2, the Spirit through Paul turns his attention to the people of God. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now think of those words from Romans 2 in light of our text as well. Israel was seeking the God of justice, and they wanted judgment on the wicked. However, without repenting of their own sin, without acknowledging their own sin, the coming of the God of justice would not be good news for them. Ready or not, the Lord whom they were seeking would indeed come to his temple. And that, too, would be fulfilled in a surprising way. They were probably thinking, when they heard something of this prophecy, that God coming to fill the temple with his glory, that God would come to fill the temple with his glory as he filled Solomon's temple. But instead, God came to his temple in the person of Jesus Christ, who was true God and true man. God's glory was revealed that way. John chapter 1 says, He tabernacled among us. In John 2, Jesus then pointed to his own body as a true temple of God, and he had come to God's people. And Christ said this right after clearing the temple courts of the money changers. And notice how Christ's cleansing of the temple area matches closely to the words of our text. The Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come to his temple, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver. Notice in this again, the surprising turn in our text. People ask, you know, why doesn't God judge the wicked? Where is the God of justice? Surely he delights in the wicked. What they don't realize is that left to themselves, without repenting, without having a Savior, they're included in the wicked. They need refining. They need to be purified. They need a Savior. We all need to realize this too. We all need Christ. And if we have fallen into a bitter and cynical attitude, perhaps it stems from a failure to see our own sin, to only see the sin of others. Perhaps it's a failure to see our own desperate need for Christ ourselves. God showed Israel that he does care about sin. He's the God of justice. But when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, he showed his mercy that comes with his justice also. You see, God could have simply cut the people down as John the Baptist warned them, right? The axe is laid at the root of the tree. God could have cut them down, swept them into the fire, Why also did God send Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant, to this earth? To show us his grace. See, God made very clear in the cross of Christ that he is the God of justice. It shows that God does not overlook sin. 
for his people. He has punished their sins already in Jesus Christ. He has punished your sins in Jesus Christ, in Jesus' crucifixion. In that justice, he shows us his mercy. Christ Jesus was punished on the cross for us and in our place. He bore the brunt of God's justice against sinners, and we all need him. And Christ came not only to die in our place, but as our text says, he came also to refine his people. Right? He gives us his sanctifying grace. That means his grace to change us, to make us holy. The Lord, through Malachi, uses the image of a refiner of silver and gold. And perhaps you know the work of a refiner. A refiner would take these precious metals, put them in a special container, and heat them in a super hot fire. And as they sat in that superheated fire, the, the gold or the silver would melt down into a liquid form. And as that happened, any impurities called the, the dross would separate from the gold, come to the surface, and then it could be removed. After this process, your gold would be, more, it would be purer, more purer than it was before. Here, God he applies a similar process to his people to purify us from sin. You know, and God sometimes uses painful methods or processes, he uses trials, he uses suffering, he uses affliction to refine his people. And he is at work for a good purpose. To free us from sin and simple desires. And the work of a refiner is a fitting description of, of what God does. God puts us through the heat of a trial. He makes us endure intensity and suffering to purify his people. And sometimes it may feel like you're breaking apart, but God is at work for a good purpose. And you know what? We might not like to hear that message. I suspect you're probably like me because I sure don't enjoy going through trials and suffering. If it was up to me, I would avoid it all. But God is the expert refiner. He's re removing sin from our souls, removing sin from our lives. As it says in 1 Peter 1, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is at work in it for the good of his people. As we are purified from sin, we once again offer to God the true worship due His name. That brings us to our last point. Now, God's sanctifying grace, whereby He uses suffering to purify us from sin, it teaches us one more thing. It teaches us another reason why God delays judgment on the wicked. You know, the people question God's justice seemed like the wicked were prospering. 
But God is not slow in bringing his justice to this world, as Israel thought, as we might think. But he's patient, giving people time to repent. And when we have come to see our own sin and our need for Christ, we also want others to come to repentance too. After all, God is the God of justice. And we know that he will come to this world again. Jesus Christ will come to this world again, and he will judge the living and the dead. Listen to uh, chapter 3, verse 5 of our text. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker of his wages, the widows and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in one sense, this judgment already came upon the people of Israel. It came in the year 70 A.D., when Christ the King came in judgment against those in Israel who refused to repent and believe in him. Rejection of Christ had consequences, as it still does today and always. But there is another day that God has set aside in the future. It's the day of judgment on the whole world. And you can be sure that this day is coming. Right now, that day is delayed. And while it is delayed, we do often see the wicked thriving and sometimes even trampling upon God's people without mercy. But that day will come. And like Scripture describes, it will come suddenly when people do not expect it. When the Lord Jesus returns, there will be no escape for those who did not believe in Jesus Christ, nor repent of their sins. You see, Christ is coming to this earth again as a refiner, a purifier. But at his second coming, he will purify the universe from sin, cleanse the world from all sin. And the chaff of this world will be burned with unquenchable fire. The wicked will be removed. And this is also why we go through that refining process, even even though it feels so painful now. God is preparing believers for eternal life. He's preparing you for eternal life. He disciplines us so that we would share in His holiness the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without God doing this in His grace, we would all be consumed. Instead, God is conforming us to the image of His Son. Now, our text ends with a simple but profound statement from God. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God does not change. This is something in theology we call God's immutability. 
his unchangingness. God remains the same throughout time. You see, Israel questioned God's integrity and faithfulness to his own character. Where is the God of justice, they cried. It seemed like God had lost it. But this is impossible for the Lord. He's immutable. He does not change. He's the God of justice, and so he will come in justice. But the really shocking thing then is that Israel remained as a nation before him. For they too were deserving of God's justice. We could translate verse 6 like this For I, the Lord, do not change, and you, O children of Jacob, are not conceived. By rights, they should have been conceived, as should we. Why weren't they? Was it because God changes? No, it was because of his unchanging grace. God of justice sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to step into our place. He has saved us by His mercy, which never changes. Instead of complaining that God doesn't judge the wicked, Israel should rejoice that God has been gracious to them. And we should too, for God has been gracious to you, for He has paid for your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.